Uh, many of you probably noticed that I am sort of hobbling around today. I actually pulled a, a calf muscle the other day. I don't know if you've done that, but it's a little bit painful. I was showing off for the grandkids and doing my famous triple backflip off the diving board. <laughs> if you believe that, you'd believe anything. Uh, I, I wish the story was that good. Uh, let me tell you how embarrassing the story was. I'd gone home Wednesday before VBS. I thought I'd get a quick workout in. So I was trying to change clothes, and I'd left something in the laundry room. And so I'm in my underwear going from the bedroom to the laundry room, and I'm trying to get there, and I look out the window, and my mother-in-law drives up, and I know she's got a key to my house. <laughs> and so I quickly turn around and run to the bedroom, and it pops right there on me. So it's a little, I'll probably be behind the pulpit today. Reminds me of the old preacher joke. There was a preacher who was going out visiting, and so he went to a, a lady's house to visit, and he went up to the house, and it was obvious that she was home. The TV was on, and uh, so he keeps knocking on the door, keeps ringing the doorbell, and nobody comes to the door. So finally, he just takes his card out, and he puts his name, and he writes Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open, I will come in. She thought she'd been pretty cute, so he left that. Well, the next Sunday he's preaching, he's standing at the back door, and this woman comes by the door, and she's come up with her own card, so she's put her name on her card, and she's put Genesis, I mean, excuse me, yes, Genesis 3, verse 20, which says, I heard thy voice, I was naked, and I hid myself. <laughs> so, I have finally got to live out that joke, I hid myself. I hope, anyway. She may be permanently scarred. Today we want to talk about Jesus. Just, uh, we've been talking about a lot of mechanics lately and, you know, goals of the church and changes we're going to make and trying to get you all to take your spiritual gift. And I, I love that. And last Sunday we're in Romans chapter 12 where we talked about really surrendering your life to Jesus, that Jesus really wants everything. And I thought today I just want to step back for a moment and say, why? Why would you surrender your life to Jesus? I mean, why would you give up all for him? What, what right does he have to demand it? Now, let, let, let's say this about Jesus. Jesus is an absolutely unlikely hero. There was a piece written decades ago called One Solitary Life. Let, let me read because it, it explains how obscure Jesus was, and yet it talks about how he's so powerful. Here, here's the reading. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, he grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never set foot in what we would call a big city. In fact, he never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He didn't do any of the things that we would say accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them even denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on this earth, his cloak. When he was dead, he was laid in a bald grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, 
And today he is the central piece of all of human history and the leader in the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that of all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed and all the parliaments that have ever sat put together have not affected the life upon this earth like this one solitary man. I've always loved that reading because I think it explains that that Jesus has nothing that you associate with greatness and yet he's the greatest figure in the history of the world. Now, I want to go to a passage this morning, one of my favorite passages, that I, says, I think says this even better. Uh, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53. It's one of those great prophetic passages about Jesus. And in this passage, you know, go back to the slide right before that, if you would. In this passage, it's sort of bookend by two different terms about Jesus. He is highly exalted, and at the end of this passage, he enjoys the spoils of victory. But in between those two seemingly victorious claims, it's, it's anything but victory. It, it actually appears to be absolute defeat. In fact, we, we, we call Jesus in this passage the suffering servant. That's who he was. He was the suffering servant. And so I want us to, to look through this today Asking, asking that question, why would you want to give your life to Jesus? Why would you want to put him first? Why would you want to surrender? What right does he have? No, actually, we're going to go back into chapter 52 because that's where the picture begins. Look with me in chapter 52 on your phone or your Bible or up here on the screen in verse 13. See my servant whack wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being that his form marred beyond human likeness. He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Now some translations translate that word sprinkled there in probably a better translation, he will stun many nations. The kings will be in awe of him that they're going to look at Jesus and go, this guy has nothing going for him, and yet he's the most powerful monarch in the history of the world. Keep reading. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And then get into chapter 53 with me. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Guys, that's, that's not a compliment. That, that's saying that Jesus' life started not in the most spectacular way. I mean, he's just a little root. He's just a little stump. He's, he's, he's just a nuisance that you probably would cut off or you would, you would cut out. And then listen to this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What he's saying is Jesus was not this great-looking, charismatic guy that you looked at and go, man, i got to follow him, man. It's really sad when I look at my own life and, and I look even at our, our, our culture, how drawn we are to looks. You know, studies have been done about people looking for a job, and if they meet our criteria of good-looking, they've got a better job opportunity to get that job. They've got a better opportunity to be elected to that political office. We are a culture very drawn to looks. 
But listen to me. People were not drawn to Jesus by his looks. He was something completely different. He said, really, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. When man first saw Jesus, we thought, what a loser. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. When we saw this character didn't look so good, who is, who's having such a tough life, when we saw him, and then we saw him getting punished, man's first reaction is, he must deserve this. I mean, he, he must be getting what's coming to him. And so it's just like Job, when, when Job's being punished, his, his friends say to him, what have you done wrong, man? You had to do something wrong for your life to fall apart like this. People were saying the same thing about Jesus. I mean, to receive this punishment, this, uh, this um, embarrassing punishment, you must have really, really blown it. Now look, but, verse 5, that's the key word that turns this passage around. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, it looked like he must have really been in trouble. The truth was, we were in trouble, and he took our trouble. Keep reading, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. This was God's plan. Some translations say there, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Wow, what violence. And throw the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Because this is written hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. And we see a specific prophecy about his trial, about his death, and even his resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. My friends, here's what this passage is saying, is everything that happened here and everything that happened to Jesus was not accidental. It was by the will and choice of God that Jesus went through this for us. So let's answer our question real simply this morning. Why Jesus? 
If you've not become a Christian and you're wondering, why are these people giving their life to Jesus when in the culture we live in, it's not in vogue? Or maybe one time you were a fired up Christian and living for him, but somehow you've drifted and you've lost your motivation. And you've been through so many difficulties and trials in life and you ask, why Jesus? Let me give you three reasons this morning. The first one is intellectual. He has proven his deity. He's proven his deity. Now, what's amazing about this passage is that we find 10 predictive prophecies written at least 600 years before his arrival fulfilled in Jesus. Now, listen to me, guys. In the early church, when they're trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, what they appealed to were two things, the resurrection and fulfilled prophecy. And this is one of the most amazing of fulfilled prophecies. Liberal scholars would say maybe it was written 500 years before Jesus, Jesus came on the scene. Uh, conservative scholars would say 800 years. That's why I'm just saying 600. And what's amazing is that 600 years out, this prophet Isaiah is able to specifically predict things that happen in Jesus' life. You know, when, when you have a good prophecy, it's got to be in a great distance and it's got to be very specific. This prophecy meets both of these. I mean, you might tell me that you're a prophet, and there's, there's certain things you could guess today. If you say to me, buddy, I'm a prophet, and I believe that uh, Donald Trump will say something inflammatory the next month. Well, it, it, we could figure that out, okay? He's going to say something, right? Or, or you might say, you know, I'm a prophet. If you are driving from I-65 from Birmingham to Montgomery, you will get backed up in traffic. Anybody experienced that the last few weeks? It's awful. Some of us were on the road hours yesterday. I mean, it's all, I mean we could predict those kind of things. Those are, those are easy to predict. Or let's, let's say I said, um, I predict that in an airport somewhere in the world, there will be a terrorist bombing. That's scary, isn't it? That's, but that's easy to predict today. We, we know that's happening over and over again. Now, 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 let's change this for a moment. How about if we went 600 years ago? How about if we went back, you know, to the 1500s and someone was able to predict in airports, what's an airport, what's an airplane? Someone was able to, to specifically predict about an airplane, an airport, and a bombing 600 years before you'd ever know anything. We'd go, wow, that's amazing. That's something I could build my life on. And that's what the scriptures say about Jesus. Because I can't prove to you everything about God, but I would want to say to you this morning, there are some very credible pieces of evidence for you to surrender your life for Him. There's credible evidence that He really was the Son of God. And one of them is the passage we're studying today. Because in this very passage, there are over 10 specific prophecies of who Jesus would be and what He would do hundreds of years before He comes on the scene. People tried to make up that maybe he tried to do this, but there was one um, uh, magazine a few years ago called Science Speaks Magazine that decided just to take eight of these prophecies and see what was the, um, what was the, the odds of any one man fulfilling just eight of them. And, and they came up with this figure, one times 10 to the 13th power. And, and here's the way they illustrated it. They said if you took dollar coins, and you spread them over the state of Texas two feet deep, two feet deep, and then you, you took a big mixer and you mixed up everything in the state of Texas. You put one X on one of those dollars, 
one X, and you mix it up all the way in the state of Texas, the odd of any one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is to blindfold a man, let him walk anywhere in Texas, pick up one coin and get the right coin. It's just amazing what Jesus did. And so intellectually, why would you want to give your life to Jesus? Because he has proven his deity. Now the next reason is theologically. He's taken my place. I mean, the, 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 the official theological term for this would be substitutionary atonement. Say that with me. Substitutionary, come on, you got to say it with me. Substitutionary atonement. Next week in Bible class, say those words and they'll think you're smart. Substitutionary atonement. That's what this is talking about. But, but here's the point is, he's taken my place. That's what substitutionary atonement means. It means he was a substitute for me. That's what this passage teaches. Jesus reconciles me to God by removing the sin that stands between me and God. You see, guys, we have a big problem. We've got this problem in that we've sinned. And God is holy and perfect, and God cannot be one with sin. He cannot be close to sin. And so our relationship has been ruptured. And we're way over here, and God's way over there. And how is God going to be able to reconcile us? How is God going to be both holy and merciful and loving? And my friends, the cross was the answer. The answer was that Jesus would come, live a perfect life, and serve as a substitute for your sins and my sins. He takes our place. And so theologically, this issue we've got of being estranged from God is taken care of by what Jesus does. And everything in this passage says he's crushed for our iniquities. He's beaten for our sins. He has taken our place. You probably heard this story years ago. I love it. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a great story. There were these two identical twins. Their name were Martin and Morgan. They, they were identical. They looked so much like each other. Even growing up, people had a hard time telling them apart. But they were very different in their personalities. Martin was a very subservient and obedient child, and Morgan was very rebellious. At first, it was sort of funny, the differences, but the older they got, the more rebellious Morgan got, and the more trouble he got into. By the end of high school, he's just a wild child and getting in trouble all the time, and Martin's a really upstanding guy. It gets even worse by his late 20s. Morgan has... um, committed a murder and he's on death row awaiting the electric chair. And the day before his electrocution's to come, here's how the story goes. Martin comes to visit his brother. And he walks in and the guard turns his back. And Martin immediately looks at his brother Morgan and says, take off your clothes. And he takes off his clothes. And they exchange clothes. And the guard comes back and he doesn't recognize what's happened because they're identical twins. And Morgan, the bad child, walks to his freedom. And the next day, Martin is executed. That's just a small picture of what happens on the cross. We were on death row. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And Jesus came, and he changed places with us. And because of that, my friends, we can now be one with God. That's the beautiful theological point. It's almost too good to believe, isn't it? It's just so good. It reminds me of this, um, this husband and wife, they're having trouble. And uh, 
the husband's not a very good husband, and uh, they're having a hard time in their marriage, and finally uh, he agrees to go to marriage counseling. They go to marriage counseling and just not making much progress. And so finally the marriage counselor takes him to the side and says, you just got to do better. Do something sweet for her. I mean, take her on a date. Buy her a present. Send her a card. Get her flowers. Do something. But what you're doing is just not working. And so one, one day he goes to the factory to work, and in his truck he, he puts a suit in there. She doesn't know it, and he goes to work, and he takes off time in the middle of the day, you know, and uh, puts this suit on, dresses up, goes by the floors, buys a dozen roses, and shows up on his front door at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and rings the doorbell. And she does answer the door. And she comes to the door, and she sees him, and she just starts crying. She just, she just starts crying. And he said, why are you crying? I thought you'd be happy. And she goes, it's, just, you know, it's been a terrible day. Little Johnny's sick and stayed home from school. And, and the washing machine um, um, you know, uh, blew a hose. And there's water all over the basement. And you, 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 you look at you. You're, 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 you're drunk. <laughs> she just couldn't believe he would do it. You know what I'm saying? It was unbelievable. And guys, sometimes we need to step back from this story about Jesus and go, can you believe he did it? I mean, guys, what this passage is saying to us is, is Jesus coming to this earth and being treated this way and dying this way was not accidental. It was purposeful. Jesus did it on purpose. The Father sent him on purpose. And theologically, it's this incredible truth, guys, that he's taking our place. And today, in the eyes of God, you can appear perfect because of what Jesus has done for you. Amen? Isn't that good news? And then one more reason. Not only does he appeal to our intellect and appear to us, appeal to us theological, but emotional. This is an emotional passage. He's touched my heart. See, some of us, guys, our, our problem is we can appreciate the intellectual arguments for Jesus and who he was. And maybe even we understand the theological arguments of what he's done for us. But for, for, for too many of us, it's just, it's just an intellectual, theological point. Especially for those of us who've grown up in Christianity. We offhandedly say, like it means nothing, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for him. What did Jesus do? Why, why, Jesus died on the cross. I mean, we, we, we just sort of go through it. And like one man says, the, the longest distance in the human body is the 18 inches between your heart and your head. And, and so here's the good news of this passage, is this amazing story appeals to both my head and to my heart. I mean, did, did you listen while we read through this? Did you listen to what Jesus went through for you and for me? This is one of my favorite passages to read during the Lord's Supper because in this story, we, we see the love of God. What other reason can, can you give for what he went through? I was just reading back through this last night, and I just, just underlined all the words that described what happened to Jesus. Listen, it, it, it's, it's violent. 
He's stricken. He's afflicted. He's pierced. He's crushed. He's oppressed. He's afflicted. He's slaughtered. He's cut off. He's punished. He's crushed. He suffered. He suffered. He's poured out. He's numbered with transgression. He bores our sins. I'm just over and over again. He's beaten. He's crushed. He's afflicted. I mean, do you hear the cadence of the passage? They're saying, this is what happened to the perfect Son of God. And and what God is doing is God is appealing to our hearts. What do you do with this? How can we just sort of intellectually say, well, yeah, I know he's the son of God. That's a great idea, but I'm going to go party like everybody else. Oh, I know he really took my place on the cross. That's cool, you know. And I understand the theological concept of substitutionary atonement. That's such a neat thing, man. How did God come up with that? But you know what? I can just be lukewarm about his cause. The, The passage cannot leave us there, my friends. There's got to be an emotional response from you and I to this kind of passage. We've got to go, whoa, look what happened to him. Why did he do this? He did this for me. And I'm going to come to church on Sunday and sit there and not sing? And I'm going to come in here and act like nothing's really happened? And I'm going to walk out of these doors and live my life on my own terms? After what he has done for me? We've got to be kidding what do you do with this? I love the story of these two kids. They grew up together. They were best friends from elementary school on. Afterwards, they, they both joined the army at the same time. They were shipped over to Iraq. It was crazy. They were in the same platoon. They couldn't believe it was that good. They got to be together. And they're fighting. They even end up in the same tent. I'm best friends forever. And one day they're out fighting, you know, side by side, and they're in one of those dangerous cities in Iraq, you know, like Fallujah, where it's hand-to-hand combat. And one of the friends is going around a corner, and the friend behind him sees a hand grenade come and land right in front of him. But before it can go off, the friend behind jumps around his friend and jumps on top of the hand grenade and gives his life for his friend. His best friend. What are you going to do with that? You can go back to your tent and read a magazine. You can go back and check your phone and see what the latest scores are from Sports Center. You just can go about your life like, like nothing happened. Your best friend has given his life for you. How will you live afterwards? We say, oh, that was a nice thing for him to do. I'm, uh, intellectually, I understand. He gave his life for me. He took my place. I should have died, and he died in my place. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I really appreciate that. Maybe I'll write his mom a letter. Or do you weep and go, my goodness, I can't, I knew we were close, but I can't believe he did that for me. Why would he do that for me? He didn't have to die. I'm living because he died. Here's what we would all say, because we've heard it before. I'm going to live my life in his honor. I want to live my life in a way that, not because I think I got to, I need to, I'm commanded to, but... But I want to make him proud because he took my place and I'm going to live that way. So this morning I ask you, what, what, is your, what is your emotional response to this, guys? Now, I've got some blanks and I'm not, I'm not even going to fill these blanks in for you. But when you see this story, I want to stop here just for a second. I want to ask you, I really want some answers here. 
What's your response? This is one of those passages where you've got to let it hit your heart. Because many of our problem is not that we don't understand. It's not that we don't even really believe. Our problem is we're not letting God get through to our heart. You got some of the response to this is when you, when you read this passage, because we see how awful sin is. What did this to Jesus? This is our sin. You, you can't walk out of here in light of this passage and go, well, I don't care what I do, you know. You just can't do that because sin is this ugly. And God is this good. And he's this full of grace. And so let, you, let your intellect be challenged that there's reason to believe in God. Theologically, understand what he's done for you. But don't any of us leave here without him being able to touch our heart. Because when we say, why Jesus? Why surrender? It's because of this story, guys. Why does he deserve everything I've got? It's because of what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've witnessed. So today I invite you to surrender. That's the word. I invite you to surrender. I think that's the response. I think the final response is, Lord, I'm telling you what, I've been trying to live life on my own. I want to live for you. And maybe today you want to surrender and be baptized. Baptism is a beautiful act of dying to yourself and resurrecting a new person. Or maybe today you just need to give your heart back to God. One thing I love about it when we meet in this worship center is I love these steps around here because they're an awesome place to pray. And so while we sing our invitation song today, I want to invite you to meet me up here if you want to be baptized, if you need to write out a prayer request. But I also want to invite any of you that would just like to come and physically bow around these steps and talk to God. You see, guys, sometimes I think in our churches we've lost the connection between our heart being changed and it changing our body in a physical response. And sometimes what I need to do is I just need to fall down before God. Sometimes I just need to get on my knees. And so if God has touched your heart this morning, if you're thinking, my goodness, how could I keep being this way? I want to be more for Jesus. I want to live for him. I want to surrender. I want the, you don't have to come tell me anything. We don't have to read it before the church. But I'm telling you, it will do something to your heart when your body bows down. There's a connection not just between your mind and your heart. There's a connection between your mind, your heart, and your body. And if it would help you before you walk out of here, just to come bow around these steps while we sing and to talk to God about what's going on in your life. This place is wide open. Just come. Just come. Why, Jesus? He's proven himself to be the Son of God. He has taken your place. And I pray to God he has touched your heart. If you need to come, come right now while we stand and sing.